We, my wife and I have been around in Virginia for um, the last couple weeks. Olivia is studying at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, and working toward a, a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. And she's worship leader and uh, an ordained pastor, a great leader, but God has been using her writing. She has a blog, and she started just sharing stories about our time in Armenia. We went to Armenia in 2003, and uh, we were very young, and there were a lot of experiences. And her, as she began to write that blog, it was pretty vulnerable and raw. We ended up turning that into a small book, and you can probably find that um, on the Internet by Olivia. But I do encourage you to look at her blog. As we went into Estonia, God called us to plant a church there. We loved Armenia, fluent in the Armenian language, um, had really no reason to leave. Our best friends in the world are Armenian, and we had staff. We had like 13 people working for us. It was, that was nice. And uh, staff was a lot less expensive. To, and then Estonia, and these are real countries as well. Uh, they are not Disney countries made up for a princess movie. They are real countries. Estonia and Armenia were part of the USSR. So if you're my age, 42, if you're around that age or older, the map at school just had this USSR. That's where these countries were. That's why we don't know anything about them. Until recently, Kim Kardashian came on the scene. She's Armenian, half Armenian, and... Uh, so there's a, a cultural reference. And those who are my age, we have a cultural reference in America for Estonia from Encino Man, the movie. <laughs> they had to uh, give a reason for why this weird, strange person was an exchange student. He was an exchange student from Estonia. It was, a, it was a caveman that they thawed out from the ice. So we get to Estonia, and we realize... Um, they may be watching this online. I won't, I won't characterize them in that way. Um, Estonians are some of the most introverted people on planet Earth. But if you go to Estonia, one thing that they will tell you, if you talk about, let's say you're on a missions trip or you're like us, we had 12 missionaries go there with us to launch a new church. We say, hey, we're here to start a new church. First thing they will say is, wow, did you know that we are the least religious country in the world? And you don't want to correct them and say, well, no recent statistics show that maybe Czech Republic or Sweden, but just, it's the national self-talk of this country. God called us to plant a church there. And uh, uh, David and uh, John and Kristen's uh, brother and sister, <laughs> or David and Kendra, uh, Millsaps, who are some of the best missionaries in the Assemblies of God, and we work very closely with them, leading the seven countries from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, and Armenia. And God has called us uh, in this last year and a half, we were asked to be area directors because the whole Eurasia, Eurasia region, North Africa, India, the, all the former Soviet Union, um, we have a unified vision to see a church planting movement break out among every people group. And so God um, called us in Eurasia Northwest to adapt, adopt that same vision, a church planting movement among every people group in Eurasia Northwest. And a 
big, hairy, audacious goal. If you're into business books, that's something that every business should have, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, kind of like Bono with, you know, end hunger, I think it is, or end poverty. Um, and the presidents, they usually have something, you know, change or I won't go any further. Let's not get into politics. Um, one percent. I believe it's a call from God. Now, one percent doesn't sound like that big a deal. But when you know that in these countries that of the 65 million people that make up the population, less than 2% have a relationship with Christ. And we don't know how many of those are actively sharing their faith and making disciples. So we are rallying around a vision to see 1% of the population become a disciple-making disciple. And those new Christians that we train to be disciple-making disciples. Now, that... It's a big, hairy goal, big, audacious goal. 650,000 people that are missionaries and all of our partner churches, we went to Christ, and then through an apprenticeship, it doesn't really take long, um, teach people how to share their faith and, and help somebody become a disciple. And the reason we have that goal is because if you get to 1% that are making a disciple, that means you're at 2%. I wasn't really that good at math, but that part I get, okay? So 1% who are winning some, you know, is 2%. And then Malcolm Gladwell says if you can get to 10%, then it's a tipping point usually. And so we can do like in America, right here in, the, in these same towns and villages where you guys live, John and Charles Wesley came back to America after experiencing revival from these German Moravian missionaries who sold themselves into slavery so they could have tickets to the Caribbean and to parts of the United States. John and Charles Wesley learned from them true salvation and, and how to make disciples. They came back, and within, before they died, 35% of the United States, uh, uh, the Americans here in the United States, were Methodist discipled believers, and it happened within a few decades. And so that is, that is the kind of tipping point that we're praying for. So we're just going to watch a short video that invites you, any, anybody here, to be like uh, David and Don Nicholson. I saw Don walking around, but I was talking about they are or ordinary people, you know, management at one of the best food places on the planet, engineers, just ordinary people, you know. Um, I mean, as a pastor, when the only thing you can do is, is talk through a microphone, if someone's an engineer, it's like this instant aura of respect. But people just like them, people just like you, we're inviting you to come at least for a year. If you're a young person and you say, I don't know what to do before university or after, and um, you want to come for a year and get a taste, we will apprentice you, and it happens very quickly, or sharing your faith with someone who's never met a Christian. Imagine that. I'm reading Matthew chapter 20. Jesus was a master communicator, and he sets up his audience. I mean, he, he had them in the palm of his hand. They didn't know what was coming. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, we actually have to back up one verse. Jesus sets up the story, the parable, by saying, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And then he says this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner 
who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And right there, his audience was on the edge of their seats. He had flipped the script upside down. This is not a normal story. We were um, very young, 26 and 24. We went to Armenia. Armenia's right in the, the, the smack dab of, of Middle Eastern culture. We were from the middle of America. We were not in Kansas anymore. I remember that June uh, hot summer day arriving uh, in, in, in Armenia, in the capital city there, Yerevan, walking out with no grocery stores, no super target, no Chick-fil-A. If uh, there was a super target and a Chick-fil-A in any city outside of the United States and a missionary went there, that would no longer be missions. That would just be normal life. That would be awesome. I dream when we're over there of walking through Target and just picking things off the shelf. Um, it was open markets. I remember the look on my wife's face as we walked past the, the butcher stalls out in 100 degree heat, the blood from those pigs and chickens and cows just mingling with the, the dirt on the, the sidewalk stepping over that to get to the fresh fruit and vegetables because our area directors who met us there wanted to show us around town and how life would be. And I'm looking on Olivia's face. My, I grew up with uh, some rough and tumble boys. One of, I'm one of four boys. Older sister uh, who was tougher than all of us. Just a house full of hooligans. We hiked the Grand Canyon a couple years ago together from the south to the north and uh, may have killed... Um, an endangered species or two along the way. I'm not sure. We didn't check. But um, my wife's idea of adventure is the unrenovated wing of the Marriott Hotel. And I'm looking at her face, and it's just like, where did you bring me, Nick? What did you do? We had never visited, but God called us there. My wife's entire family came to know Christ through an Armenian immigrant. So when they asked us to go to Armenia for my wife, it was just like, that's God's call. And you can read about that. I, I mentioned her blog just because I feel Olivia writes a lot about uh, mental health, emotional health, and her blog is extremely raw. One of the titles of one of the blog posts is, I Married the Wrong Person. And where you're like an ordained pastor and a missionary, that's pretty scary to let. And I, I let her send that out. And I got a lot of notes from my my family members who are pastors and like, are you sure? But it's a raw, vulnerable blog that our organization, Assemblies of God World Missions, is now using for people, sending people to read it who are going through depression or going through family issues because she talks about the grace and the mercy of God through those times when she didn't want to be married, didn't want to be a mom, wanted to run home and flee and, um, and even was questioning God. So how did I get into that? This was my wife, Olivia. I'm looking at her face. Why did you bring me here? She knew we were supposed to be in Armenia because of what God did. And we were not in Kansas anymore, Toto. There was a Armenian businessman. His name was Hovanes, a wild, crazy guy. Um, everybody knew who Hovanes was. Everybody in the country. I didn't know that. I just thought he was, he was a crazy man because we would drive in his, his uh, Land Cruiser and he wouldn't stop at stoplights. He would turn and 
kind of with a twinkle in his eyes, say, suggestion, suggestion, you know. And the, so we had to buy a vehicle. We have this program in our churches called Speed the Light. The youth groups raise money and help our missionaries buy all kinds of equipment. And uh, best program on the planet. And they had given us enough money to buy a brand new Toyota four-wheel drive. We had the cash, but there are no dealerships. Um, no CarMax, no Vroom, or what's that new app thing where they, they deliver the car to your house. No dealer, it was the mafia. And he said, I, I know a guy who recently brought a Toyota, like a, a forerunner from Dubai. He went to Dubai, got it, shipped it in on a container, and we can go. And so we said, sure, let's go buy it. And we were thrown in the deep end of this strange Middle Eastern culture. We pull over on the side of the highway. We're in Hovannis' Land Cruiser, blacked out windows. And as we start to open our doors, another Land Cruiser pulls up right in front of us, blacked out windows. Those doors open. And I, ha I still have this picture in my mind of those guys getting out of the car. And it's all in slow motion. And they've got the shirt that's a little bit, you know, open with the, the, the hair just billowing out of their chest, the gold chains, gold teeth, just the Armenian nose, it was more like a beak, and, um, and we get out of our car, and here I'm this, this young 26-year-old guy from Kansas City, Missouri, <laughs> and uh, I was just glad Hovannis was helping us out. We counted out the cash in the car, but nobody knew how to register the car in the name of an American. They, they, so we, we parked the car at a, a neutral third party out in a village. We, we each took a set of keys. And Hovannis took me from uh, government office to government office trying to figure out how to get the car registered in our name. And we're at the final stage. And we come to a police station and they told me, Hovannis said through a translator, that this is where we would get the license plates. So I was excited. I mean, two months without a car is like five minutes without oxygen for an American, at least for me. Um, two months of waiting, and I was ready, man. I was ready to get the license plate on the car and start driving. And Hovannis turns and he looks at me. We're in this police station, and there are over 100 Armenian guys in there black clothes, head to toe, those long pointy shoes that they wore back then, uh, smoke, everybody's smoking. And Hovannis goes to the front of the line like he did in every single government office. And just like a boss, he just opens the door and walks into the most important person in the building, right into their office. And here I am, I'm used to the DMV where you take a number and everybody looks at you like, why did you, why did you even put clothes on today? You shouldn't be here. You know, the, I'm used to that experience. And being with Hovannis, it's a whole new world. And as he's going into that back door, he reaches into his pocket. And he pulls out a roll. And I look at it, and they're U.S. $100 bills. And he looks at me, and he grabs the translator. He says, Nick John. John is a Middle Eastern Persian uh, term of endearment, like my soul. Nikjan, this is the most important part. We need to know what license plate numbers you want on your car. 
Now, I had no context for what he's talking about. And so I just said, oh, Juan, it's just, you, you can pick. I trust you. Let's just get the license plates on the car. Just that's. So he gives me a look like I had no idea what I'm doing in this country. Closes that door, and I'm thinking, I do not want to know what's going on in that smoke-filled room. About 10 minutes later, he comes out. I stand up. And I look at him, and he's just grinning ear to ear. And he's got license plates in his hand. And he comes up with just excitement. He's ready to burst. And he's like, Nick John, Nick John, tell him, you know, translate this. They have some of my numbers, license plate numbers. And I was able to get them for you. I didn't know that I had some license plate numbers here at the police station. I didn't know that they were here, but I was able to get them. And I'm thinking, Gold star, man. Let, let's just put the license plates on. I've got the screwdriver. Let's do it. And so we pull away. So I'm driving for the first time, and Hovannis drove a certain way. I was kind of hoping maybe that could happen for me, but I'm pulling up to the stoplights. I'm stopping. But what would happen is the police would sit up on the side of the road, and the way they would earn their salary is they would pull somebody over, and they would negotiate a fee, a, a service fee for just being alive. So um, I'm driving up to that police, that first policeman, and I see the stick come out just like normal, and he starts to raise it, but he's looking at me, and I can see he's looking at the front of my car, and then he stands up straight, he, that stick disappears, and he's just like, and so I'm slowing down, and then I just pass on by. Come up to the next police officer, same thing happens. So I talked to my friend, Samson. I'm like, Samson, what is going on? What's happening? He's like, you don't know? He's like, Nick, John, <laughs> you've got Hovannis' license plate numbers. 777, believer Hovannis. Everybody in the country knows him. And all of his vehicles have 777. The delivery vehicles for his, his meat company, his wife, his son, everybody has 777. And so you have hit the jackpot. You can drive however you want. <laughs> Every young man's dream. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is like a video game. This is like you got the cheat code somehow. But as we lived in, in Armenia, a Middle Eastern culture, Armenians have been integrated into that, that, that part of the world for thousands of years. They've been the, the, the traders on the Silk Road. They have a joke that when uh, Marco Polo reached China, that they were already there to greet, greet him and show him, you know, this is how you make the noodles, take it back to Italy and teach them. Um, if we read in our Old Testament, they mention the kingdom, the king of Urartu, which is Another pronunciation for Ararat, and the Armenians are the people of Ararat. They're at Mount Ararat. And so living in that culture, it was an education for us. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into when we got there. But we began to learn that uh, in the Armenian culture, they're very family-oriented. And so everything that you do, everything that you say, and the way that you appear in public is not just for your own reputation. 
Even your own reputation is not just for you. It's for the whole family. It's for the whole tribe. And so you, you drive the nicest car you can, not just to outdo the neighbors, but because everyone in your tribe and your family, they're expecting you to be successful and prosperous and powerful. You talk to somebody in that part of the world, a conversation immediately will turn to who are you connected with? I mean, you could be an engineer driving a taxi. You don't talk about that. You could be, you know, a former professor from the Soviet times of mathematics, but now you're, you're digging ditches. But you don't talk about it. You talk about my cousin is in parliament, and my uh, grandfather wrote this famous word. It's who you're connected to and who you're related to. And we have a little bit of that in our culture, but it's magnified on that spectrum. It's just way down at the end of that spectrum. And... I realized, reading this, that knowing Hovannis and knowing someone who was as important as the person that Jesus was describing in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, a landowner, someone of that status in Israel, would have been able to trace their genealogy back to one of the original 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel, through those genealogies. Or they would have had the financial ability to purchase the rights to work that land. So everybody in Jesus' audience on that day could have pictured a, a landowner. But someone like Hovannis would have never allowed himself to be observed doing something as lowly as what's described here. To go to the market, even today in, in these cities in the Middle East and in Yerevan, you go to the market and the day laborers are lined up there just trying to get some, get, get some work for that day. And Hovannis would never be caught dead going to that market and hiring the day laborers. He's sitting with literally the governors, the politicians. Hovannis took me in when I got in a car accident um, to the chief of police. Once again, just walked right into his office. The chief of police stood up and came and nearly began crying that Hovannis was in his office. And that's the kind of people that Hovannis hangs out with. And, he, and by this time, I understood Armenian. And he was talking about how, thank you, Hovannis, for putting my kids through university and for helping me build my house. And this is who Hovannis was connected to. And Jesus was describing someone, and maybe you can imagine someone like this, someone who just, when they come into a public place, Everybody knows who they are, a landowner. But Jesus flips the whole story upside down. He says this landowner comes into the marketplace. And we're not talking about, you know, Super Target, Piggly Wiggly, Safeway. What, I don't know the grocery stores around here. We're talking about the, the central lifeblood of a, of a community and the surrounding farmland. And they were almost always in the gate of a city. The city would be walled, and the gate would be just this wide open square. And if you go back into uh, history before Jesus, the kings of Israel, that's where they would sit and they would hold counsel, was in the gates of the city. And the judges would sit there and they would decide cases there. And you do business there and all contracts are done with the witnesses. And in that culture, when you go into public, you are dressing... Be to, to show everyone your status. 
And not just for yourself, but the weight of everyone connected to you is always on your shoulders. The future of your son's ability to do business or get a job or get an education was, was on your shoulders at any given time. And Jesus said that this landowner disobeyed all cultural encoding into his life thousands and thousands of years, thousands of years of cultural indoctrination. So what he's describing is a, a story that his audience could not imagine. This is a different story. But he says the kingdom of heaven is like this landowner. And he went out hour after hour making a fool of himself, risking everything, risking his entire future. And as the story ends, we don't have time to read it all. The sun is going down. He finds more workers in the marketplace. He asked, why have you been standing here all day? He said, nobody hired us. And he said, just go. I will give you a full day's wage. Go. By the time they get to that, the vineyard, maybe half an hour of, of daylight left. And he pays them a full day's wage. But the way Jesus tells this story, he's trying to make a point. He said, Jesus' audience, they understood occupation. Something that as Americans we don't quite understand. In the former Soviet Union, you talk about the Roman occupation. You read that in the Bible, and, 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 and especially the older generation, they clearly understand. But Jesus' audience was not just under a, a, a political and military occupation. And they didn't quite understand this. But since the, the Israelites were taken into captivity in, in Babylon and had come back, there was a religious system that developed that became a religious occupation in the lives of everybody that Jesus was talking to on that day. And I believe that we live under a similar misunderstanding of reality. Jesus was directly attacking that religious occupation. And what it said was this, if someone is going to get good things from God, it's going to be because they have kept themselves clean and pure. That if they're from the right family, then they're going to be blessed by God. They'll get to live with the blessing of God. But everybody knew, everybody in Jesus' audience that day was educated in this religion, Jewish religion, from the time they were little kids. Very, very uh, ingrained and woven into every aspect of their lives. The festivals that they celebrated throughout the year. And so they knew. They, they heard, even if they weren't so religious in maybe their, their actions, and they didn't keep themselves so pure, they understood that God promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. And that God's righteousness meant that God would never fail in his end of the, of the bargain, of the contract. So Jewish audience, their understanding of God's righteousness is that he will hold up his promises. But they looked around them and they didn't quite understand. Why am I sick? Why are my kids sick? Why, why am I not advancing in life? And what this religious system taught them was that somebody brought a curse on them 
if they didn't have as much money as maybe a Pharisee or a scribe or a Sadducee, the religious elite, it was because they just weren't worthy. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who was willing to disregard all cultural protocol, make a fool of himself, and come into the marketplace himself. And come, not just to the good people who were trying to do things right, but even those people that were overlooked, who were considered unworthy, unlovable, unusable. He came to the people who had been out too late the night before, and they knew that they had made a mistake, and maybe it was a mother-in-law who slapped them upside the head and said, get into the marketplace, get a job, maybe you'll get half an hour's wage. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who was so overjoyed that somebody would join him in his passionate, desperate mission on that one day. And Jesus went about with a mission in his ministry here on earth. He went from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, directly attacking this mentality. And from the beginning, he's saying, Jesus is saying, he's saying it to us, from the very beginning, what it's been about is God loves you so much, not because you earned it, not because you were born into the right family, not because you are free from addictions and habits and sins that you're embarrassed of. Not because of that. He loves you because he's God and he created you and he loves you. And you qualify to be on mission with him if you simply look in his eyes and say, okay, Let's go. We were um, uh, planting Focus Church. A lot of teams came in. I know you guys have sent a lot of teams in um, to our part of the world. It's probably all over the world. You just recently went to Lithuania with your worship band. I heard it was just amazing, and the effects were huge. We had a guy on a team who had a stroke. He was a, an eye doctor. He could hardly walk and hardly be a part of it, part of the team, the ministry life. So he said, just show people around the building. We did a concert outside our building. And I think John, uh, John and Kristen, you guys were there when we did one of these, just outdoor kind of concerts and people walking by. And he gave a tour to an Estonian girl who was in university. And if you know Estonians, they're very nice. They'll say, sure, I'll come. He invited her to one of our Alpha course, but she showed up, and that was, that was a, a miracle. But not only did she show up, but she gave her life to Christ and was baptized in our church. And this eye doctor, through that whole trip, he and his wife were just so worried that life had just passed him by, that he was no longer usable. And as he hobbled through our building and showed the kindness of Christ in his eyes, in his words, he was a catalyst for someone who I believe is in the 11th hour of the harvest of church history, a nation like Estonia. And Jesus says to you that he wants to use you. We were ready to leave Armenia and uh, 
we had been there eight years. About a year before we left, we were up in the Kurdish plateau, about 50,000 Kurdish people, and most of them are Yezidi Kurds. The Yezidis, the Yezidi religion is an animistic religion. Lucifer is the god or, you know, small g god that they, they sacrifice to so that he won't destroy their crops and their livestock and their children. And um, we worked with a pastor named Boris or Boris, and uh, his story was fascinating. And we were in his home. We were with a group of interns with Convoy of Hope, and uh, he was telling us the story how he came to Christ. He became the first Christian on that plateau, became the first pastor. He uh, led everybody in his town to Christ. Every household was being discipled in his church. We said, there's one house that just won't come around. It was a next door neighbor. And my wife, Olivia, heard this and she said, well, let's just go next door and be a blessing. And so the pastor's wife and Olivia and some of the young ladies went next door. As Olivia walked in, she saw a young lady in the corner by herself. And the mother of the house barked some orders at her. She got up, went into the kitchen area. It was a dirt floor. And brought out the tea and the coffee and the cookies. And the ladies were all sitting around together talking. But this young lady, Delore, was not allowed to sit with the women. She went to the corner. And Olivia's heart broke. And she did what you're not supposed to do as a missionary. You kind of, you're, not, you're supposed to respect the culture and... Um, she got up and she went to the corner. She put her arm around Delore and she came in and she gave her a seat with the women. And the mother of the house just exploded. And she's speaking Kermanji, Northern Kurdish. And Olivia and I speak Armenian. So she didn't, um, Olivia didn't understand what she was saying. So later the pastor's wife said that she was just yelling curses on this girl. So she had been married to their oldest son for three years and was not able to get pregnant. And in their culture, her only value in life is to have children, to bring a son into the house. And in their culture, and you can read about this, they believe that if, someone, if, a, if a wife is not able to have babies, there's a curse. So they'll send the young girl back to her family and it's been known that brothers of, of a girl like that will, will kill their sister to eliminate the curse. And so the pastor's wife is explaining this to us, and she has tears in her eyes. Olivia's heart breaks. Both of our kids are miracles. Olivia has fertility um, challenges. And we had just been through fertility treatment and were able to have Ava. And so Olivia... Olivia said, if, it, if I had been born in a Yezidi village, that would have been me. So she started to pray. We prayed. We brought some doctors up to consult with that young couple. And right before we left, we found out that Delore was three months pregnant. And so Olivia, you know, we're two days from flying out of the country. Our whole house was packed up, ready to ship off to go to Estonia and start a new phase of our lives. And we're coming back home 
their long, exhausting Sunday up in the north at one of our, our, our partner churches. And we had ministered all morning, and they had hospitated us. If you're from the Middle East, those cultures have a verb. You hospitate people. It's just lavish, overwhelming, aggressive hospitality. Um, and so we're exhausted, and we're driving back late at night. We come up over those switchback mountains, 7,000 feet. And I said, you know, Olivia, let's just uh, send everything with, with one of our friends to deliver to Delore. It's half, a, half an hour off the main highway, and that road is one of the worst roads in the country. And Olivia just looks at me, looks ahead. She's not arguing with me. And so I said, Olivia, listen, we can't go. We've got to leave the country just in a few days. The kids are asleep. And Olivia's looking out the front window, and she's just kind of got a little bit of a smile on you know. I mean, listen, Olivia. Now, I pull out, like I go nuclear. I pull out the big guns. The Bible says that the man is the head of the household. <laughs> and I can quote chapter and verse. And I won't keep reading where it's, you know, it, it, it balances it out. And Olivia just keeps looking straight ahead. And so we turn off that main highway and we go to Dolores Village. Because um, I'm a good husband and I'm still married. Um, so I said to Olivia, you go in, talk to Dolores, her family, deliver everything, say goodbye. I'm going to stay in the car and guard the children. I mean, this, there's wolves out here. This is dangerous. So half an hour later, I see in my side mirror that they're coming out of the house. So I get out. I walk up, say goodbyes, get back in the car. Olivia's face is just flush red. I said, what happened? And she said, Dolores is healthy. The pregnancy's going well. And she said, I was able to pray with that whole family, husband, cousins, sons, daughters, Dolores, to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. In John 14, 12, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. And when Jesus, this morning, listen, Jesus is in the marketplace of your life right now. He's looking into your eyes. He's pointing his finger in your chest, and he's saying, on this rock, I will build my church. And it doesn't matter if you were overlooked or if you chose something that disqualified you. The grace of God is unending. Let's pray. Jesus, we give our lives to you this morning. We want to live every single day in your kingdom. And so we choose you. And we ask that we, as we become a part of your family, your tribe, Jesus, that you will pave the way for us. We don't know how to do everything that you're calling us to do. We don't know how to live a holy life. So we ask that you would walk with us, open up our ears, open up our heart, and let us hear and know everything that you want to teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.